It's a jam-packed strategy episode. How to look for upside. What is the value of a multi-positional player? How to navigate fab. Plus, we'll preview some undervalued and overvalued players from the first two rounds of ADP. 2021 NFBC main event and auction championship winner Phil Dussault joins us to talk about a multitude of topics next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Ship podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How you doing, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing splendid here. Oh, wow. We are getting into all this preview here, starting to do the positions, starting to get projections, ATC projections out. Hope you've had a, a chance to uh, sift through them. I've sifted through a little bit, if you can believe it. A uh, lot more to do. But uh, how, how, how are you doing, Ruvain? What's going on? I'm doing great. I'm just trying to get ready for the baseball season. Actually, pitchers and catchers are supposed to report 23 days from this taping. So it's coming up. It's coming close. Yeah, I can't wait. And we've got a very, very special guest on the show. He was the 2021 main event of the NFBC and auction championship winner. That's hard to do, but he did it. Phil Dussault, how are you? Did I, am I pronouncing it correctly, by the way? Yep, you're right on. There you go. Welcome to the show, Phil. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, I'm doing great. And uh, we, we are having on Phil, who obviously knows how to win these uh, very big contests to help us with a lot of strategy. It's going to be pretty much an all-strategy episode today, and we'll do a lot of different topics. So let's get right into it. And let me just start by very, very generally throwing out the question, Phil. How should one prepare for a fantasy baseball draft. Not looking to give all your secrets away, but you know, what's the general process that somebody should do if they want to up their game? Yeah, so I mean, the way I do it isn't the way that most people should do it. Um, I have some skills with Excel that not everyone has, so I, I don't recommend doing what I do uh, if it's not your strength. Um, for the um, average player, I'd say, my best advice would be either use ATC or um, aggregate projections yourself um if you want your own mix and whatnot um then manually just playing time for hitters and then spend the remaining time doing deep dives on as many pitchers as you have time to do um especially probably start in round three or four um i think that's where projections lack the most and if you can spot an increase in velo a pitch mix change, a new pitching coach that is working, a pitcher that went to driveline that you saw something and you feel good about him. Uh, just deep dives like that, 30 minutes for a pitcher, just looking for news, um, looking at his different pitches. He's going to try to use his curve, slider more, all that stuff. Um, I think that's what projections miss the most. And if you have time to spend, that's where I'd spend it. And that's where you can um, gain an edge on, on the on the crowd. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that projections haven't done this yet, although I think they will soon. Is exactly what you said, uh, is is incorporate pitch mix change into their data. I mean, I remember a time where projections did not have velocity in them, and then someone spotted that, oh, wait a minute, 
velocity, that really is a good indicator of a good pitcher. And when you put it into your formulas on how to calculate strikeouts, oh, my goodness, uh, it correlates very well. I'm surprised it hasn't been done yet. And I, I think it will be soon because it's all componentized. Like, you, you know, we, we know what the what the rates are. We know what, what the, the pitching values are per pitch. And then it's just a question of what was their previous mix. And if you had to change it, oh, the, you know, in the future they're going to do this mix. It should be fairly easy to change. I haven't seen projections do that, but I kind of think it'll be. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, it's something I do in my model. So I think it's it's coming soon. If I was able to do it, I'm sure there's a lot uh, a lot of people who are smarter than me who can who can figure out as well. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and Ruvain, uh, what about you? What what is your you you think uh, anything to add to the general way to prepare? And you know, what, what other tools and resources that do you use? Well, I like to hear what the players have to say when they first report to spring training. I want to see how they're talking about what they did in the offseason, if they lost weight, gained weight, if they're based on a pitcher or catcher, if they a pitcher or hitter, if they lost weight or gained weight. That's a is a big difference with that. I'm going to look at the ADP. I'm going to see where the players are falling right now and see how my projections, the projections I use, such as ATC, if I use those projections, how they fall compared to what the ADP looks like. I'm also going to look for something a little bit people that people just don't look at this much but when people and players change positions or change their roles like let's say a pitcher says they're going to be a, a reliever when they were a starter a starter when they're a reliever sometimes you can find a lot of hidden value there exactly any any to me i think that i mean i'm a projections guy and i like to use projections any soft data that's not incorporated in projections that you know isn't that's something that can add value uh but i I like Phil's idea of using ATC. That's uh, that's kind of what I do also. Uh, j- just curious, you know, from your point of view, I know that you, you do your own system and you do your own projections, Phil. Um, wh- what percentage of NFBC high-stakes guys you think either use ATC or, you know, look at it for a gut check? Um, I couldn't tell you. Um, the people I talk to the most um, have – a pretty high level of, of Excel skills. And I think they'd rather have more control. So they, they do the aggregation themselves, but it's pretty much the same thing you do. Uh, but I think everyone, at least for a gut check, does look at Fangraphs and looks at ADC and compares it to see if they're, because it's a, it's a really good, um, I mean, you've said it yourself over the past few years, you've seen that ADP and ATC get closer together. Um, so I think that it's, it's, it's a way to, gauge the market in a projection form, I'd say. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how many people use it, but I, I think the, at least in terms of comparing it to the market and see um, whether they're higher or lower on a player. Um, I think a lot of right, people right, use right. it for that. So, um, Phil, how have you changed the way that you've prepared for a draft in the past couple of seasons? Um, so since about 20, um, 2019, um, that's when I spent all the time to, to build my formula. So um, since then, the, the basic idea has been the same. Um, start with, with projections um, as well as my own formulas and then try to make improvements on those, um, whether it's velo, whether it's pitch mix, all that stuff. Um, and then so the, the basis has been the same but every year i look at the formulas um see what i can do to improve them um i get new data every year i get an extra year of data every year so i add that and see how that adjusts the formulas um so i think our our processes are we look at different things but i think we both focus on improving the formulas um 
every year, and that, that that's that's what our process is. Yeah, Ruvin, have you done anything different in the past uh, couple years that that's trending for you? Yeah, I'm watching what the market does. I'm watching how people value certain players. Like four or five years ago, even six years ago, pitchers weren't valued as highly as they are now. And the last couple of years, the last two, three years, it's been relief pitchers. It's been the relief pitchers that have been really, really pushed up Im immensely in what's going on in, in the draft. And, and I think if you follow that, you can actually mold your model or, or basically help construct your team based on how the market is acting. I haven't really done anything different uh, from my my process over the over over any time. Uh, it's always about you know project players, find who's undervalued, see what kinds of positions are undervalued, see what statistics are undervalued, and go there. I mean, it's it's the same question every year. The answer might be different, right? In some years, I might say, oh, I think the ace starting pitchers at the top are the value. Oh, or the middle round closers. Oh, uh, the middle catchers, the end catchers, whatever it is. It's a different answer every year, but it's the same process of you know doing your work, making sure you know what your projections are, what your values of players are, seeing what the market does, and finding I mean, we call them hot spots on the show for you know a lot of players in the same place that could be value, but that's what it is. It's it's finding it's finding the spots. Changes every year, but the process of doing that to me has been the same. Um, Phil, do you have what's called uh, maybe like a do not draft list of where you take you know you take all your players and you say, all right, uh, I like uh, these, but I will not at no point ever draft these guys or or maybe you do a uh here's my you know 25 percent of the player pool i'll only draft these guys and i'm not going to draft anybody or are you a guy to well i'll draft any guy at the right spot like what what, what what's what's the right method and what do you do so i'll draft any guy at the right spot except my my rankings are so bold that i mean i know there's about half the player pool that i have no chance of getting um, like for example, right now, um, let's see what example, like Michael Harris is my hitter number 41 right now. There's no way I'm getting him. Um, that would mean I need him probably in the, um, probably seventh round to start considering him. So, I mean, I have no interest in him. So, I mean, it's not technically a do not draft list, but he's so low in my rankings that I know I'll never get him. Um, and he's he's an extreme example, but I, I'd say that's about true for for about half the half the, the player pool. Um, I'd say there might be maybe twenty five percent are targets. Another twenty five percent are I'll consider at or below ADP, and then the the rest is I need like a crazy drop to to to, to draft them. Do you purposely stay away from injury prone players, or you don't, or as long as you just go by your rankings and that's it? I just go by my rankings, um, but I mean the injury risk is is pretty baked in. Um, at least I try to to put in as much as I can. Um, I mean, I my playing time projection is an average of four or five different um, playing time um, from different projections, but then I have some adjustments that I make um, if the hitter ended the year injured if. Um, he had a bunch of injuries the previous year, then he'll get some additional drops because they're things that I, I'm not sure are, are fully baked in the, the playing time projection. So there's things like that that I add, which in the end mean I usually fade. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever drafted Buxton. Um, he's, the, he's the poster boy for that question, I guess. Um, 
So, I mean, I'll, I'll consider some guys, but um, I, I generally stay away from them. By the way, speaking about Buxton, and we usually don't do news on this show, but the Twins just uh, traded for Michael Taylor. What does that tell you about uh, what they think about Buxton's injury risk? I mean, it's Buxton insurance. We saw it last year. They, they used him at DH when, when they could. Um, I think if they have Taylor in center, um, they'll, they'll put Buxton at DH as often as they can. He's, he's an elite center fielder, but they, they'd rather have his bat, his bat in the lineup. So um, I, I think maybe half the game he plays will be in center field, maybe a little bit more than that, depending on, on how he's feeling. But they I mean, they, they signed him to a, a decent contract, so I think they, they want to keep him healthy for, for as long as possible. Yeah, insurance, I guess. Uh, that's the story. Um, you know, we talk a lot about risk on this show, and I uh, wanted to get your take on, on, on what you do because, you, know, you, you know, you had Michael Taylor priced as uh, – sorry, you had uh, um, Michael Harris priced as uh, 41 or 43. I, I forget exactly what you said. But, uh, uh, you, know, it, you know, there obviously is something to him. Either you're projecting a true talent that's lower or you're projecting a risk factor. Hey, he's a second-year player. How in, how do you incorporate risk into your roster construction? Do you take players and then downgrade them because of risk? Do you say, all right, I don't want to take a certain injury type? Do you say, okay, I, I to roster an injury uh, to roster a risky player, I need to get a discount. Like, how, how do you deal with risk when you're building your teams? So it's all. I mean, in my my formula spits out one number. Uh, it's an SGP number. It it puts together the the pro, the projection, my formulas, all that stuff spits out one number. Um, so that's really the number I look at. Um, I have things like, for example, I had, I I added that last year. I call that the Leo uh, Leo Tavares rule, um, which basically any player whose value depends purely on or mostly on speed, uh, but isn't very good, he'll get bumped down. Um, just because if if they even if they hit their um, say 40th percentile projection for a month, they're a the kind of player that loses playing time really quickly. So that's the kind of thing that I um, is hard to put in a projection because I mean projections will say well he should based on the current depth chart get. I don't know, 500 plate appearances. Based on what he's done before, he should steal a ton of bases if he, if, if he does get those 500 plate appearances. But when, when you step back and look at the skills of the player, um, what I'm focused on isn't the projection itself, it's my overall number. So there's things that I can include that in that overall number that projections maker projection makers can't do. Um, so that's kind of the thing I, I add in and, and risk um, and injury risks fall in that category as well. So, um, players that, um, I don't know, had, uh, missed, say, had, I don't know, 60 days on the aisle the year before. Um, I'm not sure that their playing time projections truly reflect that. So I'll add that into my number. Um, in terms of roster construction, um, I, I do it more for the pitching staff. If I if I start my team uh, and I have a Degrom, then I have um, Kershaw later, and then I'm at a point where I'm looking at um, I don't know who's uh, I don't know Severino for example. Um, 
I'll probably pass on him even if my number tells me that I have to draft him. So for my pitching staff, I'll try to um, factor in who I drafted before um, a little bit more. Um, but other than that, that that's about the only element of of, um, of risk that I um, try to include more in my roster construction. Other than that, I, I just try to try to draft the, the top player on my list. So it's funny you mentioned that, um, you know, if there's a one-dimensional player, one-category player uh, that isn't as good, you know, you, you're going to drop him. That actually is calculated with the ATC projection with, with their risk metrics. Um, the intra-projectional intra standard deviation, which is the dimension risk factor, uh, is exactly that. It actually shows how one-dimensional a player is. Uh, you know, when I calculate my values, I actually... I don't remove, but I take down some players who are one-dimensional. You know, players who get in every category, like Bo Bichette, he's going to have... Now, he's a high player, but I'm just giving an example of a guy who's a five-category player. He's going to be spread out a lot so that, you know, the value of him missing that one category doesn't affect his overall value as much. Say a Suzuki comes up as another guy who's fantastic at uh, being spread out categorically, so their value is spread out. Uh, that actually is, is a way you can do it, and I use it to risk-adjust. So I have a price for a player, but then I'll risk-adjust and, to, based on their dimension, take them up or down. Yep, so that's, I mean, that's basically the same thing. I call it, I mean, I think I have in my spreadsheet, I, I called it balance, um, balance of the different categories. And I find that those players are easier to replace in season. Like if you draft a Gene Segura who contributes a, a bit in every category, um, if he gets hurt two months in the season, you're looking for a replacement in fab. He's not a player where you have to replace 30 stolen bases or 30 right. home runs. Correct. Um, it's, it's easier to replace those, those players who contribute a little bit everywhere. Um, because your team is usually more, more balanced at that point. And then correct. Can, correct. You can uh, more easily find a replacement. Yeah. And I call that categorical or profile risk. It's the risk of, uh, a player, an absence or an underperformance adversely affecting any category specifically or his value goes kaput because of the one category. Uh, let me go to Ruvain first for this question. Um, you know, we do a lot of auctions here, but in a snake draft, um, do you, Ruvain, do you scope out the players that you're more likely to take later in the draft? And that will feed your early round decision. Meaning, you know, let's say you envision you're looking at, 12th round, 13th round, you see, oh, I think I'm going to take a corner infielder there. Well, that makes me less likely to take a corner infielder early on, even if it's the best player, because you can get somebody who you think is tremendous value there. Is that something you do? Or do you draft best player a whole way and, you know, wherever the chips may fall? Well, I, I try to do that because you want to have an idea of what your roster is going to look like toward the middle rounds because usually it's the middle rounds where you want to try to take, if you're going to take a risk, I think that's probably the area to take it. But early on, you want to try to get a good base. So you have to know, okay, listen, I want the I want a hitter, a good hitter in the first round. I want either a good hitter or a pitcher in the second round and then same thing and goes on. But last year in TGFPI, I did something and, and I this was I wasn't sure what to do with this and I and I, I really spoke to you about this. I had no idea what to do. I picked Garrett Cole in the first round. So I had the pitcher. I had the pitcher. He fell to me. I, I liked where I got him. And then my my idea was okay when when it comes back, I want a guy with steals or I want a guy with a lot of power. But when it came back, I had another pitcher sitting out there with that had the high one had one of the highest 
values out there. So I was tempted to go after the pitcher, even though I know I needed a hitter, because I knew that if I were to take if I, if I would take pocket aces, which I, I don't like, I've never done before, it sort of straps you for the rest of the draft. And you have to know that if you're going to deviate a little bit from your original plan, you have to have the whole plan set for the rest of the for the rest of the draft otherwise you're going to be trying to chase stats the rest of the time in the end i ended up picking the pitcher and i ended up i felt like for the whole season i was chasing hitting just because i had the two i had two top pitchers now it ended up working out okay i mean i finished in fourth in the league so it wasn't that bad but usually you have to scope out and you have to have an idea of what's coming up what can fall into your lap or what you can expect and you from that you just look at the adp from prior drafts and you can see how that works Phil, what about you? Same question. Are, are you mapping your, your drafts backwards? Are you saying, well, later there's a more plentiful middle infielders, so third baseman is not that plentiful in the middle. Uh, push up Jose Ramirez and Machado and Devers and all that? Um, I, I don't like mapping out drafts too much. Um, if in a main event, I might... Actually, not even a main event. In, um, in a... Last year, my, my high stakes league was the diamond. I'd planned the first four rounds, and I was reaching on every single player just because they were huge targets and I wanted them. Other than that, um, I, I don't like mapping out because I feel like it ties me to a specific build. Um, and I, I don't like that. I don't want to be at a point where um, the plan was um, to draft a certain player, and then either he's gone or um, there's someone else that I like better that's there, and I'm just going back and forth between do I take the better player, do I take the player that I plan for? Um, I'd rather just draft the pl best player. Um, one thing I'll keep in mind, especially draft champions, a little bit different. Um, in in fab leagues, I feel like there's always players that are going to show up in fab in the first couple of weeks that we didn't expect to play every day, but do play every day. So I feel like you can usually fill in at pretty much every position early in the year, if you're aggressive enough. Um, in draft champions, for example, this year, it's a little bit different. The The shortstop go early, and I know if I miss out on the shortstops in the first 10 rounds, it gets really tricky. Um, because there's so many elite ones, it means there's fewer that are going in that round, I don't know, 15 to 35 range, um, because there's fewer platoons, there's... Um, because there's so many elite ones. So um, that's, I mean, that's pretty much the only scenario where, I mean, this year I'm keeping that in mind when I'm drafting. Other than that, um, I just, I adjust my values based on, based on position scarcity before. So if there's, if I feel that the third baseman a little bit weak, then I'll bump, an, I'll bump their values up. But once that's done, um, I just follow my values as much as possible. Yeah, I think it mean it makes a difference what format you're playing in, whether it's deep or shallow in the shallow release. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, where there's more replacement uh, on the wire, obviously it's a little bit different, um, you know, than than the deeper ones. Um, I I do look at later rounds. I mean, I like to find the hot spots. If I see that, oh, there are four nicely priced first basemen compared to ADP going in the twelfth and thirteenth and fourteenth rounds, I'll probably get. You know, if there's four of them that are nicely priced, I'll probably get at least one uh, at a nice price. So I don't want to pick two first basemen earlier, block my corner infield spot. So I do take that into consideration. 
I I wouldn't pass over a very good value, but if things are somewhat equal, I will you know look towards what I think is going to be available later on and have a plan. I don't have a hard plan, but I I have a map of where I think hot pockets of value are per either per position or per statistic even, um, and that would help me in some of the decisions early on. I mean, you, 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 I generally want to build the roster early on to give me the most flexible way of building it later on. If I know that there isn't going to be steals available in a lot of rounds uh, in somewhere in the middle, I might want to focus more on steals earlier because I – want to be able to pick whoever I want. I don't want to be pigeonholed in, oh my goodness, where's my speed? I got to get somebody. So it does pay to look at what's going on, uh, but it's not 100% certain. One thing I, I definitely do look is that, you know, if I'm in a spot and I'm deciding, all right, should I take the third baseman or should I take the shortstop? If there is only one more third baseman to take, um, and then there's a huge drop in value. And right now, third base, after you get past some of the better ones, Arenado, Endeavors, and whatnot, there's there's a nice drop. Shortstops, though, in the mid-early rounds, there are a lot of shortstops roughly worth the same amount. Um, because you can get one of those shortstops in the next couple of rounds where you can't get a third baseman in the next couple of rounds, you might want to jump and take the third baseman, and okay, I can I can pick the next shortstop. It's like a it's like it's like a short version of a replacement level type draft where you say, all right, you know, the difference between this and this is this. The difference between this and going dropping down three positions and shortstop is this. Get the get the tightest one. I used to do this in football. I know the uh, fantasy football. Um, Tight ends. I mean, uh, before everyone took Travis Kelsey, this is like four, 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 three, four years ago. I, I, I would always come up with, oh my goodness, Travis Kelsey is a first round player. The difference between him and the other tight ends are ridiculous, um, and and that sort of thing works even in the first and second round. I found. What about? If, it depends also. I think where you're drafting. I mean, if you're drafting in the middle of the draft as opposed to drafting at fourteen or fifteen, I think if you're drafting, you know, at one, two, or fourteen or fifteen, you got to be careful. You got to have be able to map it out a little because you can start to see trends in the draft and you can start to see what's going on and you have to map out stuff because otherwise you're going to be in trouble when you're in the middle. Let's say you're at picks, you know, between six and ten, it's not going to be that bad. But but if if you're on fourteen, fifteen, or one and two at a turn, it it you you have to map out otherwise you're just going to lose out and you may end up breaching but you'd still have to map out a little bit yeah that's a great question yeah phil uh p- p- put that to you you know what d- does it matter to you in terms of what the plan is and in terms of mapping out whether you're in the middle or on the ends and and do you have a preference as to where you like to be um so one more thing i just want to add for i i will map out the saves that is the one um i guess saves and speed um so i'm more about mapping out um having a plan for categories as opposed to specific positions. Um, but my, I mean, my, my rankings have been heavily tested. Um, so I know, uh, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process where I'll do, um, mock drafts by looking at ADP. I'll, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll make sure that my rankings fit ADP. So I don't, I don't get caught off guard by, um, all the third basemen in my rankings being way too low. And then I get to a point where I have to reach for them in specific drafts. Sometimes you can get surprised. Uh, but generally, um, once we have some good ADP, um, my rankings in terms of, of positions are, are pretty set. Even in terms of, of categories, I feel like I have the, the right balance. Um, so I'll, I'll map out saves though. I'll know, 
I need my closer by whatever round because after that I don't want those players my closer one. Um, and then in the early rounds I'll I'll, I'll lean towards speed. Um, and yeah, you're right. If if you're on the ends, especially for saves, it's even more important. You can't just say, well, there's six guys I like. If if you have a, a pick in the middle, if there's six guys you like, you can generally let them go by and grab the last one on the way back, um, which you can't do when you're at the ends. Um, but wh when I find out my draft position, saves are usually the first thing I look at are which clothes are going to be available at the, say, 1-2, the 3-4. The five six turn. What do I like better? If I wait till the five six turn, is the do I have a backup plan that I can reach on um, if I have to? Um, so, but I don't like what what I meant to say when I said mapping out. Now there's people who look at the first twelve rounds and say, well, I mean, I have these two targets in round five, these two in round six, these two in round seven, and so on. Um, I don't like being being tied to to a plan like that. We're talking here with Phil Dusso, who uh, was the 2021 main event and auction championship uh, champion from the NFBC. And we're talking about strategy and a little bit about risk. And, you know, um, I've noticed in the past couple of years, and it's getting progressively towards this trend, that more of the drafted value is being, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll use an insurance term, seeded out. It's being you know, thrown out either because of injury or underperformance, and more waiver wire guys are coming in. And, you know, so the, the, the draftable value is just going down compared to everything else. Uh, to me, that says that if you're taking picks in the first couple of rounds, let's call it three, four, four top three, four rounds, uh, I would be super conservative. Take players who absolutely will hold their value. Freddie Freeman who is going late first round, early second round this year, to me, there's an argument that he should be picked in the middle of the first round or even higher because of his stability. We're pretty sure he's going to end up a top 25 hitter. He's done that five years in a row. There's only one other player who has been a top 25 player in the last five years, and that's Trey Turner. So if you're not taking Turner, Freeman is so super stable in terms of returning that value. And when people do projections and people use projections, we're not really looking at what has happened in the past couple of years. Who has been the guy who's earned it the most the most? You see Aaron Judge, and he just went off this past year. Oh, my God, he's a top two, three player. But he hasn't done this every single year. Freddie Freeman has shown this over the past five years. He's been healthy, but whatever you call it. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment that uh, you should be heavily, heavily weighing on your decisions early on to be super conservative and taking what you would deem as low-risk players, players who are going to hold their value above all else? I think it's, it's a great strategy. Um, I don't use it personally. Maybe I should. I mean, I've had some some struggles in the past few years uh, with, with my early round picks. Uh, but it's... Uh, I don't have a good argument for it, though, honestly. Because, it. I mean, the, the way you phrased it sounds like a great strategy. Um, <laughs> I just... Um, I mean, if I look at some of my drafts the last few years, if i just gotten, I mean, par value or close to it for my first few rounds... I would have been in, in much better shape in some leagues. Um, but I do kind of like, I know my numbers um, over a full season, a full roster of multiple teams, they will 
even out. Um, so I'll take the players that it that the system likes, even if if there's more risk. But I do I do a lot of high stakes leagues, so I I do in the first three or four rounds I I do uh, differentiate a lot. Um, even if I love um, Trey Turner is not a good example because he's going too early, so it's hard to get more shares. Say I I love Otani. Um, I might get him in my high stakes league, but I won't get him in two main events in, in my, in, in, in another league. So, um, I, I, tr- I try to spread the risk that way. So at the end, my portfolio might be, if I have six leagues, I'll have, I don't know, 20 different players in the first four rounds. And I feel good about that, that portfolio of 20 players who should as a group return, return, um, more than their ADP. It's a little bit different when you're playing a lot of leagues versus one league. Definitely, yeah. Right. If if I, mean, if, if I if I I mean if I had a single main event and it's it's all I can afford every year and I'm putting everything in that in that uh in that league, I mean I'd lean a Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, um who else? And Machado probably falls in that group. Um Devers as well is up there every year. So um I I'd lean towards guys like that, definitely. Okay. That sounds good. Ruven, uh I'll put this to you. Are leagues won by taking risks early, taking risks middle, or late in drafts? And I guess the corollary to that is when should you be tipping the scale from taking more conservative players to then taking more risky players in your mind? I think your best it depends what you're going for. If if you're going for, let's say, you're just going for an overall, then you know your profile should be a little bit more riskier than than. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a conservative player, but if you should be more more risk, not worried about the risk. If you're not going for an overall, but you're going for a place, or you're trying just to win your division or win your league or something like that, then I'd say probably the middle to late rounds are probably best because you want to get that base. The first couple rounds, you want to get that solid base that you can bank on, and then you hope to hit on a couple guys later on who will help other areas where you're not as strong like if, if you go into a draft and you say okay uh, I, I the shortstops are great you mentioned Philly that the shortstops are very good but after a certain amount of time the shortstop just they start to drop off and you don't want to be left without one of those top shortstops but if you build a strong enough base, there's no reason why you can't take a risk on one of the lower shortstops that you hope will hit that will make that jump from, let's say, from a, a 21 round, uh, uh, you dressing a 21 in the round 21 to, let's say, either a, a 15 round value. So something like that. I, I, I don't like taking it too early because if you take it too early, it can hamstring you and you can be out for the, your team can be out of contention very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done studies as part of the ATC risk uh, volatility metrics that you know, the players with the lower amount of parameter risk early on, more expensive players, tend to actually do better on average than the ones with high risk. At the bottom, though, the $1, $2 players, it's the opposite, that players who are a little bit more risky in the aggregate actually do better because they have more upside and the downside's cut because, you know, if you have a $2 player who, misperf- who underperforms, especially a hitter, you cut Right, easy. They don't really affect your, you know, pitchers are different because they can crash your ratios, but especially hitters, you just cut them. So you're realizing the upside and not much downside, it's just a cut. So there is a point where the answer is true. Phil, what is that for you? Uh, Do you think that um, leagues are one risks early, middle, late, and what level, what round, or, you know, what's your general sense of where you should be flipping from focusing on floor to focusing on ceiling? So, I mean, the obvious answer is, is later risks. Um, 
make more sense. Um, there's it depends on so many factors though. It depends on league size. Depends on like Ruben said, if you're playing for the raw, it's different. Um, also depends on your skill level as a fantasy player. Um, if I probably don't have to take as much risk as someone else when I'm playing fantasy baseball. In fantasy football, where I'm terrible, I'll take more risk because I need to hit on one of those risks to be able to be the more skilled fantasy player. Um, so it depends on that. It depends on the price point of the league. Um, there's so many factors that um, that go into that decision. Every, I do believe every, every player has a price. Um, you can be in a league where... I know last year, um, before before spring training, um, there were a lot of people fading Degrom. I think his ADP was in draft champions in the early third round, but there were some drafts where everyone had their mind: "I'm not touching Degrom, not touching him." Well, at some point, someone has to take him. So, I mean, I in in an overall competition, in say $150 DC, I probably would have, even though he was somewhat off my board. I would have considered him, say, the late third round um, in a higher money league. That might change. Um, one example I can talk of is in my Diamond League last year in the NFBC, which is $10,000. Um, Luis Castillo and Zach Gallen were um, guys that I was trying to avoid. Um, I mean, their ADP around that time was around 11. But before the injury doubts, there were two, there were two guys that I liked. So... Um, and $10,000, obviously I don't want to draft an entry risk. And I'm like, I just hope someone else takes them. Um, Castillo, I took in round 13 and Gallen, I took in round 17 and they're the reason I won that league. So, um, everyone has a price. Even if, even if, if you, if you say these guys are off my board at some point, you have to weigh in the upside. And for me, that, that was those rounds um and it worked out but it's 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 a tough decision sometimes you just hope someone else takes the player um and you don't have to deal with it and buxton was kind of those guys when those guys lasted when he was healthy in spring um we all knew the upside um and i was just hoping someone else takes him so i don't have to deal with the decision because they're, they're a really tough decision especially in, in higher money leagues so what are the types of risks that you find have worked out better and what are the types of risks that ha you find have not worked out? Like, what are the general? Is it uh, catcher risks have worked out well, or pitcher risks, or old guy risks? Or like, what, what class of risks do you think are have been better than expected and worse than expected? Um, I'd say we tend to overreact to the most recent news. Um, so I think the risks that usually work are, I mean, the, the two guys I named Castillo and Gallen last that worked out. There was also Zach Wheeler who was going in the late second round, I believe. Then there was some noise about a, an injury he had, I think like three months before the season, he kind of just rested his arm and then it was fine. Um, but he was pitching in spring or he was slightly behind and I think he ended up missing one or two starts, but uh he was slipping a couple rounds because of that so i think those are kind of the risks that obviously it sounds everyone's scared of pitcher injuries because if it could end i mean you can wake up one morning looking at fine grass or a wire uh and you see he's out for the year so um with, with tommy john so they're, they're the harder risks to make but i do think that we tend to overreact to, to recent use
I was going to say, Ruvain, you're, you're the injury guy. Uh, what's your take on drafting risky pitchers and risky players, who are, especially who are injured? Well, you could say every pitcher is a is an injury risk. I mean, forty eight percent, close to forty eight percent of all pitchers went on the IL uh, a couple of years ago. So it, it doesn't matter if the pitcher has a history of injury, where they throw a hundred miles an hour, where they throw ninety miles an hour. It, it doesn't matter. All pitchers have this risk because your body is not supposed to throw a, a sphere for a hundred times. That every every five days from ninety feet and trying to pinpoint with pinpoint accuracy, it, it it is it's it's not a normal thing for a body to do. I'd rather take risk in hitters with an injury risk because like what the Twins did, they just got Michael Taylor. So now I may be willing to go and and you know and have a few more shares of Byron Buxton because it looks like the Twins want to do go the route like a John Carl Stanton where I have him DH more, play the outfield a little bit, and you know what that will get him more at bats. You get him more at bats. That's what they need him for. They need him for his bat more than they need him for his glove. They just got a gold glove uh, caliber or gold glove winner in, in Michael Taylor in center field. You do that. I, I mean, I can only see upside now in, in in drafting a Byron Buxton. But Jacob deGrom, he pitched well, a month and a half last year, two months total for the entire year. I mean, where he's going, I, I, I don't I don't feel comfortable taking him. I mean, we, we, we had so many shares of him last year. But, I, I mean, what we did was when we drafted him, we were nervous about him last year. This is before he actually went on the aisle and he was pitching in spring training. We drafted him, but we also drafted his handcuff. We drafted Tyler McGill in a lot of those leagues also just to be sure, just to be safe. Because, again, one out of two, almost one out of two pitchers end up on the aisle. So all pitchers have a risk to get hurt. Yeah, but I like with with Degrom last year. I, I know we had a lot of shares, but you know we didn't spend the first, second, third round. We spent thirteen dollars in an auctions on him. That to me, that was well below the risk adjusted price. Um, that that was worth it. And maybe the maybe the uh, fault was taking uh, too many shares of him, but uh, definitely that price suggested it for us. So, uh, Phil, anything to add to, to this? No, I mean definitely for for early rounds. Um... I mean, for, for guys that have never done it, um, I was kind of just referring to the overreaction we have. But a player that, um, for example, guys like DeGrom and Buxton that, that Ruben named, um, they're players that, like, at this point in January, we already see them as injury risks. Um, whereas the guys that, that I was thinking about, the Castillo, the Gallon, the Wheeler, at this point, we thought they were healthy. Then we learned there might be a little bit of something, but there's usually a quick overreaction um, that it can be a good buying opportunity. But as a general rule, uh, definitely hitters are, I mean, because if, if hitters are injured, it's usually a six to eight weeks thing um, for whether it's a hamstring or a hammy bone or whatever it may be. Um, for pitchers, an arm injury can turn into, into Tommy John. It's a zero. So, um those are the ones you try. You want to try to avoid as, as much as possible, but um, it's it's what most people try to do. So sometimes it can be it can be a buying opportunity. Um, but I think that's more true. Come the end of March, where we're overreacting to to the news, just or if if someone hits two home runs in in spring training, his price goes up. Um, so it, it's things like that that we we overreact to because it's all we have, um, and sometimes we can use that to our advantage. Now, question to you, Phil, on on starting pitchers that have some injury concerns or returning. So I've noticed that if you look at projections, projections tend to be optimistic on the 
playing time for the pitchers. If you actually use Jacob DeGrom, and ATC has him at 143 innings, uh, maybe that's optimistic. Or if you use an auction calculator and you price DeGrom, he will look and appear to be the number one or number two top pitcher to take. I don't think many people will be drafting him as number one or two top pitcher. I think people are going to assume some more limited innings or whatnot. Uh, Chris Sale at 134 innings. You know, at th- at that he's going right now in the 12th round, but he's worth a couple rounds more if you look at projections. Take like K- Clayton Kershaw, ATC's projecting at 125 innings, also a bargain if you look at what his projection is. Um, what do you do for those starting pitchers? Because I assume you don't just blindly take these projections, and even your own projections might be optimistic and say, whoa, all these injury uh, risk pitchers that seem to be great bargains, so we got to grab them. Are you decreasing the innings and then pricing them? Are you saying, well, I see that, but I'm not going to do it? Like, how, how do you deal with the starting pitchers that have injury risks where the projections show that they would actually be a bargain compared to ADP? Um, for most of those guys, I do have a, a downgrade in my number uh, based on the innings they pitched the previous year, the two previous seasons, um, whether it was an injury, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'll generally f- fade at least the early round ones. I mean, DeGrom, I don't think, I don't expect to have any shares this year. Um, but once you get to round... I don't know, round eight, ten, it starts to get more interesting. Um, I mean, Chris Sale is obviously a huge risk, but there's huge upside. And at that point in the draft, it could be worth it depending on your team build. Um, it depends on the format. It depends on whether it's an overall. It depends on the entry fee, all that stuff. But if it's more likely that I have shares of Chris Sale this year than I have DeGrom. That's a good take. What about you, Ravini? Any uh, anything to add? No, I I th- I think we're we're we've got this pretty well. That we're all knowing that we that these pitchers are going to get hurt, and that the, the risk is just, you know, it's it's also a matter of the construct of your team. If if you're going hitter heavy and you want to take that risk on the on those in those possible injured pitchers, or like Phil, you said about those whispers going on in spring training, go after those guys. But it, but it's. It, 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 I hate to say it, but injuries are a crapshoot. They're basically a crapshoot, I mean, especially for pitchers. So one of my strengths when I'm playing league is the draft, that uh, my valuation skills are good, projection skills, uh, I guess, are good. Um, so I, I make my money by picking players well in the draft, and especially in an auction, just extracting the economics of the auction. Um, I'm not saying that you're bad at it, but I think, Phil, and I think you'll agree that your waiver wire skills and your in-season play is really what, what makes you uh, stand out. Um, do you agree with that, by the way? And do you think, in general, leagues are one at the draft or more one in-season with the right picks? So, it, I mean, I mean it's, it's obviously both. Um, I've In-season used to be, be my weakness, but it's become a strength. Um, if I have a year like 2021 where I hit on players in the draft, um, guys like Robbie Ray, Logan Webb, um, Dylan Cesar had on a lot of teams, if not all my teams, because they were late picks. Um, if I hit on those, I'm very, very hard to beat. If I have a year like last year where I just mess up more picks than I should in the draft, 
um, then I, I grind in season and, and try to make it up. But um, one example, one of my main events last year, I finished in second place. I lost by half a point uh, the league. Um, my draft started Luis Robert, Ozzy Albies, Freddy Peralta, Dylan Cease worked out, uh, Roldis Chapman, Jose Barrio. So that's five of oh, my boy. first six picks that are basically zeros. Um, and I mean, the rest of the draft, I have some hits, but I mean, I still had, uh, I mean, Santander was a hit. Zach Gallen worked out, Ahmed Rosario, Logan Gilbert, Tommy Edmund. So I had some good picks, but I had some other bad ones. Like I had Bellinger on that team. I had um, Nick Pavetta, Miguel Sano. So it was like after that, I had some hits, but a lot of bad picks as well. So it's not, it's not one of those drafts where I made it up later. It was maybe slightly above average draft after round six, but the first, five of the first six picks just killed me. Uh, but I made an in fab on that team. I picked up Christian Walker in week two. Uh, pay, overpaid for Drew Rasmussen. Well, overpaid compared to the, the runner-up bid, but it ended up being well worth it. Uh, and Calgary was another one of my pickups in that league. So um, I've become a much better in-season player. Um, but, I mean, that skill is... Um, it's more replicable, I'd say. Um, for the draft, I, j I just hope that things work out this year and that my, my numbers work out better than they did last year. And I think if they do... Um, I, I hope to have a good year. Yeah, and I'll definitely say that I think as the years have gone on, I think that being good on the waiver wire has become more important. I think that because there's a lot of attrition or, as I say, seeded value, it does become more important to be there. And so, you know, when you're trying to pick up players and you're doing your fab and uh, you spend a lot of time, I know, on on, on Sunday and, and Saturday before the uh, pickups to – make sure you have what whatever you want and to make sure your pickups are great. Um, a, what do you look for when picking up the waiver wire? Are you looking for player upside, hot players? Are you looking to fill category needs? Uh, and then B, how do you decide who to drop, which is almost as, I'm not going to say more important, but it's it pretty important knowing who to drop. Yeah. Um, I start with the drops. Um this actually wrote an article on the FTN draft guide where I kind of go through my, my process of, of figuring out drops. Um, so if, if, if um, listeners want more detail, they can go look at that. I mean, as, as a general, just to summarize the article, I guess, I kind of break the season down in three tiers. The first part of the season where I think it's about being patient. Um, I, I talked about with injuries, not overreacting to recent use. You don't want to overreact to a month of, of, uh, of stats. Um, first month i'll look at playing time uh but for for pitchers um if there's a pitcher i loved in march two bad starts aren't going to change that and we we saw that last year with uh sorry two years ago with robbie ray um his first couple of starts were terrible um and if you like them in march don't change your mind because of a couple of bad starts um once we get into say may to july that's where mistakes are made and I make them as well. Um, it's so hard to decide if, um, trying to come up with a good example. Um, no one comes to mind, but if a player you liked is out for eight weeks, actually, um, Danny Jensen was one of those guys last year. Um, guy I liked, uh, went on injured list early in the season. Then for a longer period of time in, in May, um, it's it's hard to decide what do you do with those guys. Do you hang on to them 
eat the zero? Do you pick up a replacement and lose a bench spot? So it, it obviously depends on how many bench spots you have, if you have IL spots and so on. But uh, May to June is where, May, May to July, sorry, is where mistakes are made and where you try have to try and take advantage of other people's mistakes. That's where Drew Rasmussen I talked about was dropped in in one of my leagues and I over for Patreon because I loved him in draft season. Someone else didn't like his first two starts and I try to pounce on that and take advantage of it. Um, and then the last two months of the year is where um, just draft capital, um, what they've done for you so far in the season just doesn't matter. It's all about um, just taking, just it's it becomes almost like a DFS where um, you try to maximize stats, you stream if you have to. Uh, if you don't think someone can help you for the next three weeks or four weeks, don't be scared to drop, to drop him. If you have too many saves, it's time to drop. You can drop a closer uh, and so on. So um, that's where the, the grind comes in. And that's where I usually try to take advantage where teams that might be out of it move on to football, where other owners aren't as active. Um, so that's, that's for the dropping part. Um, in terms of every week, how I decide who to drop, I mean, I, I look at my roster, I have some, some formulas that tell me how I rank players rest of season. And I try to balance that with my projections for the upcoming week. Um, whether it's my own or Rasball. Um, so it's, it's really a, it's, it's a complex answer. It's a balancing game. I find that, um, having friends to talk to um is really helpful before you make a big drop ask your friends who play the same game as you am i crazy for wanting to drop this player um talking things out listening to podcasts um just grabbing information and trying to make the best decision um i'm to go back to your question about whether i look for upside for prospects I'll, I'm not a prospect guy, but I'll look at projections, see what they think for guys that were called up. I'll look at AAA stats and try to just blend all that together. It's kind of just, it comes from experience, trying to grab as much information as you can, put it all together and try to make a decision from that. But it is hard and comes, it comes with experience. And my first few years of playing this game, I was terrible at it, but I, I've gotten a lot better. Yeah, it also comes with putting in time. Uh, yeah, time definitely. to evaluate the players. Um, I, I was at uh, First Pitch uh, Arizona, and I can't remember. Maybe it was Steve Weimer or somebody who said that, oh, uh, you know, you, you in the audience, you're just as good as me uh, it, as, lo as long as you put the time in. I put a lot of time in. If you put more time in me, then you'll be better than me. Um, you know, a lot of this is dissecting the information and, you know, really deciding. In terms of, the, in terms of who to drop, you know, we have a motto on the show that if – Somebody's going to pick up the player that you drop. Uh, you probably shouldn't drop him. Now, not at the end of the season where we're talking about categorical things and crazy things happen, but in general for the first half of the season, if you think that somebody's going to instantly pick up somebody next week, probably shouldn't drop him. Uh, and, of course, the circumstances, you've got too many injuries, but that's the general general rule. And, uh, you know, could you drop somebody? We also have another rule is, Will I be using this player anytime soon in my lineup, or is he just going to ride on the bench? If he's going to ride on the bench, well, you know, somebody to pick up on the waivers might be a better opportunity cost than the guy who's not going to even play, uh, and vice versa. Anything to add, Ruvain? 
Yeah, I think the first couple of months you have to try to see what you were deficient in during after the draft. You look at your team after your draft. You say, okay, I need stolen bases. So maybe you look at a guy who's, again, this is exactly what Phil said, looking for, for playing time and, and how much playing time certain players are, are getting and we're supposed to get and they're actually getting. Because let's say you're light in stolen bases and you see a guy who's playing, you think he's a stolen base guy and, and he's getting more playing time, then jump on that. If, if you think you think you're weak with saves and you see a guy who's getting more saves in a committee than, than the other people, then go jump on him. I, I think... It's not as much as need as much as um, the first couple first month or two or even two and a half months. You're trying to fill and fix what went wrong in the draft because nobody ever has a perfect draft. So you're trying to fix exactly what what you don't what you think went wrong in the first you know in your draft, and then after that you can work on other stuff. If you want to, if you if someone drops a prospect because they need room on their roster because you know people can hold on to prospects. We hold we held on to Trey Turner when he came up for almost three and a half months, and he just sat on our bench and sat and sat and sat. And you kept asking me every week, are we dropping him? I said, no, we're we dropping a no. Even though sometimes we needed a spot, sometimes those prospects that you draft and you want to hold on to, they're not worth the player that you're going to be picking up. Phil, what do you do with, with closers in waiting or maybe next of line closers? Because, you know, if you wait till somebody gets injured, then uh, they're going to be $300 out of 1000 on the waiver wire. And that's not really great. Ideally, you pick up the closer for a dollar the week before, right? How, how do you detect who's going to be the next closer, and when when do you know when to jump in before to get those to get those guys? Um, so there's other people that are better at this than I am. Um, in my mind, Mark Cerebro, a Hall of Famer in the NFBC, is at least in in my eye, from what I've seen, that the fat pickups every week. He's one of those guys who just jumps in before everyone. Um, it depends on. Um, so in the NFBC, we have seven bench spots. Um, in 2021, when I had my great season, I was very lucky with injuries. Um, and I could use most of my bench spots uh, for either starters that I wanted to hold on, that I saw upside in, one or two hitters to stream. And then I had a couple spots for, for middle relievers like that, that I, could, that, I th- that I thought could become the closer. Last year was a totally different story. A lot of players I liked got hurt early in the year. Steven Matz was one of those. Um, a bunch of catchers got hurt. And I, I was, my, my, my bench was filled with injured players. Um, and I couldn't afford to take those chances. And that hurt me. So um, it depends what you have on your bench. But I'd say if, if every week, if, if you have a, a, a bench spot that you're not sure what to do with, find that eighth inning guy. Um, Either where the closer might have struggled in in the previous couple of, of outings, or um, sometimes just take a chance. If um, I don't know, it I mean it works better around the deadline when when we know who who might get traded. But like um, speculating on Felix Batista last, it worked out great uh, before the deadline. Uh, but even even in May, if um, if you have a, a roster spot you're not sure what to do with, pick up, um, I don't know, AJ Minter. Um, maybe you can use him as, as a reliever if, if you need um, a guy you can plug in if you have bad starts. Or maybe Kenley's going to get hurt that week. Um, I mean, that was last year. Sorry, it's different this year. It, it, it might be John Schreiber or whoever else. Um, but it's take a chance like that. Just don't, don't leave a... Don't keep a, a guy that you don't love on your 
on your bench, take a chance on a middle reliever, and you might just get lucky once. It only it only takes once uh, to get lucky, and you can end up with a closer for the rest of the year. So, by the way, do you learn in season from one league to the next? You know, something happened in your league, pickups or whatever, and you say, oh, and then you use that next week? Um, maybe in the... Um, the, the NFBC is great for, 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 I mean, you can have access to, to what, um, everyone else did in all the other main events. Um, so you have access to, I don't know, 46 other leagues and you can see who, who the good players picked up. Um, and it's something I'll keep an eye on if I see, I mean, I mentioned, mentioned Mark Cerebro. If I, if I see him pick up a closer and waiting one week, um, the next week I might pick up that guy just because I know some a good player like them. Um, I, I know my strengths. Closes aren't necessarily my strengths, so I'll find someone who's better at it than I am and try to, I don't know, copy what they did. doesn't always work out, but um, if I have an empty bench spot, like I said, it's one of those chances that could, could be worth doing. Um, one thing I wanted to add when you're talking about, um, about drops, um, you can see it sometimes in the NFBC. I forgot how, I mean, Jeff Zimmerman has a name for it. I forgot what it is, but um, you'll see a player is um, 80% owned in the main events, um, which means he's he's owned um, in, say, 40 of the 50 main events. But in the other 10, no one bid on him. Um, so that's usually a sign that if you're hanging on to one of those players, you might want to just reevaluate. Um, whether it's really worth holding on to him because the odds are if you drop him, if no one picked him up in the other 10 leagues, um, odds are that in your league you can drop him and pick, up, pick, pick him back up a couple weeks later. Yeah, that's great to use information there. Uh, and, you know, going back to what you said earlier, you know, the best things you can do for Fab is really just to talk to people, people you trust, people you know. I mean, even just, you know, Ruve and you and I, you know, we talk about our own leagues, but... I use some of the ideas you have on some of my solo leagues. I'm sure you do the same on yours, right? Of, of course I do. And I use my deeper leagues to help me with my shallower leagues because you can catch a rising star in the deeper league quicker than you can in the shallower leagues because you're exposed to more information. The more information you have, you'll be able to pick up that deeper guy in a shallower league quicker because you had your eye on him in a deeper league. Yeah. Um, Phil, want to talk about multi-positional players. Um, I don't know how prevalent it is this year compared to some of the other years, but you know, there's a lot of players who are first base outfield eligible, or second, third, short second. How valuable are these multi-positional players uh, to you? Do you say, all right, well, they're a $7 player, but because they're multi-positional and, and then I'm going to add a dollar or two, what, what do you do for them? And obviously it depends what format. You know, if you're in a best ball format, a multi-positional player is worth a lot more because it'll automatically give you the credit for whatever position it is. In a fab league, it's still it's a value. It's not as big a value. But uh, you know, w- what do you do in terms of factoring that in and, and what is the value of multi-positional players in your mind? So um, last year, there were so many of them um, that it wasn't um, um, – sorry, was it – 20 sorry it was in 2021 there were a lot of them so i mean it was at a point where you didn't even have to push them up in your rankings that you i mean you just happened to draft them because if you like the player more than than other team you you throughout your draft you'd find four players that you liked more than than others that happened to have multi-position um 
this year it's a different story. There's a lot fewer of them. Um, I pushed them up. It depends on the position, anywhere between um, 0.4 and 0.8 SGP. Um, so when I look in terms of dollar value for top players, that's probably going to be, like you said, between a one and two dollars. Uh, and I kind of um, drop that based on ADP. So a player in round 10 won't get as much of a boost. Uh, just because at that point there is in round 10, there might be a 40% chance that the player is going to be off my team in, in July. So um, I don't want to give him as much of a boost for, for the multi-position. Um, I generally try to be um, a little more aggressive with them than the market. Um, if I get in a, say, 30 team, 14, uh, sorry, 30 players um, out of 16 or 17 hairs I draft, I'll try to get three of them. Um, it allows me to only have maybe one or two hitters on the bench and cover every position, um, with, with my multi-position guys, uh, in fab leagues, that's kind of the goal uh, for me. Yeah. I, I think for me, it, 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 uh, the value in a fab league is where, you know, if you have a guy who's eligible second, third, and for some reason, you know, your second baseman gets, uh, gets, uh, uh injured, well, because you have a second, third eligible guy, you now the player pool that you're looking for to replace the guy expands, right? You're not just looking for the second guy. Now you're looking for either second or third. So it gives you more access to the players, and obviously that replacement level goes goes uh, down a little bit, right? So because a replacement level on the waiver wire goes down, it means you're overly boost. So when I'm calculating my auction Z scores, I factor that in. I look at you know what the difference in the waiver wire would be between, you know, second, third, or first outfield, whatever the combo is, and it gets a little bit of a bump for those positional players because I know I'll be able to expand my horizon. It's not a huge bump. We're talking like a dollar or two, uh, but, you know, hey, it's factored in. Uh, just, you know, whatever it is, you know, it makes a little bit difference. For, for most people, you know, if, if it's a coin flip, then take the multi-positional guys. It's not a huge difference, uh, but there you go. And I, but what, but I, yeah, I also think that it matters when they're taking in the draft because the early on in the draft, those players, it doesn't matter if they're multi-division position or not, their value is high, but toward the middle to the end of the draft, when you want to make sure you have those utility guys where you can throw in in case there's an injury here and there, I think those, like the middle rounds and the, and the late rounds, those, when they're multiple position, they increase in value only because the top guys, they're going to have the value no matter what. It's the middle to late rounds where they gain a little bit more than than, than multi-positional early round. Yeah. If you have a catcher outfield eligible guy, I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, to catch a league, you're never playing him in the outfield. Uh, you know, that you can throw away. Uh, but, you know, you, you get the idea. It, it always depends. Uh, I do want to ask you, Phil, about uh, streaming pitchers. Um, I have noticed, and uh, you could tell me if you agree or not, that the streaming pitcher strategy, which I used to use all the time, does not work as well as it used to be. I found that the players on the wire who you think is, ooh, look at that matchup coming up, it looks juicy, uh, no. I mean, in fact, it's become almost a verb in fantasy baseball speak. You've gotten gombered. You've gotten fettied. Uh, you know, you name the the guy that everyone keeps picking up because they think it's a good matchup. Oh, wow, look at that. They're playing that team. And, and it's a crash. 
and I've noticed that uh, it, it just doesn't work as well as it used to be, especially early on in the season. Uh, you're just not sure what the good teams are going to be. You're not sure how the pitcher is going to be. So streaming, especially early, just doesn't work. Do you agree with that? And is that a reason, do you think, going into 2023 to shore up pitching earlier than you think? So instead of relying on the 3 and 2 and $1 pitchers at the end to fill out your number 6 and 7 spots, maybe just make sure that all your pitchers are $5 and above and try not to actually stream at all. And If you have to, put a middle reliever or something, but don't put those streamers in. What are your thoughts about streaming going into next year? I mean, the ultimate goal is to be able to stream pitches from your own bench where you have enough depth that you can play matchups from your bench and you don't have to pick up guys in fab. Um, it depends on league type. It depends on the ball. Um, we, I think last year it was a little bit more doable than it was in 2021 um, just because that um, mediocre pitcher that is available in, I don't know, half the leagues in in fab um i mean back in 27 2018 that guy used to go five five and a third um qualify for the win um offense was lower so you could get a four 4.5 era kind of guy um as teams have moved towards using relief uh relievers a little bit more um that five innings is slowly becoming four and two thirds four and a third and the juicier the ball um, that the shorter uh, the outings and the more damage on the ratios. Um, last year with with the dead and ball, it might have been a little bit more doable. Uh, but just because we're in in a trend where uh, relievers are being used more and more, um, I think we're approaching a point where even the ball can't save um the the streamers. Um, so. I mean, the ideal scenario is is not to use them at all, but you can have, I mean, I had a bunch of pitching injuries last year, and yes, I tried to use middle relievers at times, but there's some point where you need volume, and if you see a J.P. Sears who has um, two good matchups, you take a chance and you cross your fingers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, you have injuries, and this is what's left, and here you go. And I need the win, so probably not, but what the heck. You know, he's going to get more more than my more, more wins than my middle reliever, of course. We understand that. And I don't uh, think yeah. – I, th I think right now, I mean, there's no one who goes into – I mean, it's even the same thing. We say streaming hitters is easier, but you shouldn't go um, into a draft saying, I'm going to stream hitters, I'm going to stream pitching. I think no one does that. It ends up being a backup plan. And if if you miss uh, miss on some picks, if you get injuries, then you try to make the best decision you can based on categories. You just don't overreact and pick up a streamer in May because you think you need strikeouts. Um, sometimes it's just worth being patient, saying I've got starters coming back. I'll put them in relievers, not kill my ratios, um, and then I'll make a move in later in the, in the summer. But what you can do in a draft, though, is you can say, you know what. If I have $1 players, make them all hitters. Or in the draft way, all right, rounds 19 through 23 are all going to be hitters. I'm not going to draft a single pitcher past round 18 or whatever. You, you could distribute your selection so that you, know, you end with the pitching earlier than you would the hitting and say, all right, if I have to stream anything, let it be the hitters, not the pitchers. You could theoretically do that. 
No, you're right. I mean, if if I have, I know for me, I'm better at streaming, and I think in, for for most people, the same thing. I'm better at streaming hitters than I am pitchers. So I know um, I'll put myself in a position at the draft that the most likely scenario is that I have to stream hitters over pitchers. But I mean, obviously, the goal is to hit on everyone and not have to stream anything. Um, and right, right. I had some teams in 2021 that worked out that way. So that's that's the ultimate goal. Um, but I think the number one goal is try not to stream pitchers. And then after that, it, it's, it's, it's hitters. Any other take, Ruvain? Uh, agree, disagree, anything to add? Yeah, why not, why not try to stream in the beginning of the year, stream middle relievers because middle relievers, especially quality ones, they'll help your ratios and you may, they may turn out to be a Spencer Strider. They may turn out to be a Jeffrey Springs or like the year before, they may turn out to be a Ranger Suarez or Justin Steele who started out as middle relievers, did so well that they got boosted into the starting rotation or they got more playing time or they can even become a closer. So I think in the beginning of the season when there's more questions as to how long pitchers are going to go and, and, and how, how long at least the managers are going to give these pitchers, it's a matter of trying to maintain your ratios because if you, it's very hard to come back when you're when you're throwing out just two star pitchers early on and streaming and they're all and they're all bombing maybe one or two hit but a couple bomb and they don't really always even out that way so i think maybe we should try streaming middle relievers early on and you can stream the uh, starters later on when you have a better idea of how many innings these pitchers are going to go so let's end off this uh, episode with a little bit of first and second round. We know Phil plays a lot of uh, high stakes, so we're not going to really uh, pressure him to give us his sneaky sleeper picks in the 15th round. But I, I think, Phil, you'd be comfortable uh, talking with the uh, about the first and second rounds and maybe some players that you'll have more shares of and less shares of. Do, do I have that correct, Phil? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay, all right, good. <laughs> so, uh, but before we do that, you know, it's late in the episode, but it's time for the Injury Guru's Trivia of the Week. So now we're going to talk about the first two rounds of the draft, and my trivia is going to be based on the last two years, 2021 and 2022. Five players in 2021 and 2022 were both dra- were all drafted in the top two rounds and returned either first or second round value in a 5 by 5 who are they? Five players that both were drafted in the first two rounds in both 2021 and 2022 returned first or second round value in a five by five. Who are they? You know, a few of them were mentioned already in the episode, but fuck, fuck, let's even get the rest. Freddie Freeman? <laughs> Freddie Freeman's one. Jose Ramirez? Jose Ramirez, another. Trey Turner. Trey Turner's there. Mookie Betts? Mookie Betts is not there. No. No. Um, the answer is Vlad? no, but his teammate, Bo Bichette. Okay. Yeah, so I was I was about the same. I wasn't sure about 2021. Was it? Was it uh, it's 2020 they got hurt, right? It wasn't 2021. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, and we're missing one more. He was mentioned in this episode already. Um, hitter? That's who? A hitter? Yes, a hitter. A hitter. No pitchers who were drafted in the first two rounds in both years returned value of first round or second round. Is it Machado? Yes, it is. Manny Machado. So those top five, we're talking about how 
uber safe these guys are and how safe and and how consistent they are so those five guys have been drafted and they're still being drafted like that in the first two or possibly close to it first two rounds returning first or second round value so phil who do you think is currently being drafted in the first two first few rounds first two rounds that are overvalued um I mean, I, I talked about Michael Harris earlier, so I won't name him again. Um, for me, I, I want to say Juan Soto. Um, and it, it kind of goes to one of the questions that, that you, you had, but we, we didn't get to. Um, players that tend to be overvalued, I'd say players that are great in real life, but aren't necessarily um, good fantasy players. Our game, the 5x5 five five game, doesn't reflect um, real baseball. And I think sometimes we get um, um, influenced by that. And I think Soto is a perfect example. He's a great hitter, um, but um, he walks a lot. Walks aren't good in fantasy unless you're a um, stolen base guy, uh, which Soto isn't. Um, And even if he hits 290, because of the amount of walks, his, his at-bats are lower, and he'll probably, he won't contribute as much in terms of, um, of, of, of SGP, in terms of average, than someone who might hit 285, uh, sorry, 275 or 270, um, who gets more at-bats. So um, he's, he's one guy that I'm, I'm fading. I, I, I think I got one share in a gladiator draft in the middle of the second round because he really slipped, uh, but that's probably the only share that I'll have. Ruben, why don't you go first? I'll I'll wrap it up after. <laughs> okay, I have two players that I think are being overdrafted a little bit. Julio Rodriguez, where he's going, I think he's being overdrafted. He is a great player. He's a, he's a five-tool player. He is one of the best players in the Rising Stars in baseball. But you're paying for what he possibly could be and what he did at the end of last year. It's very hard for him to keep that up. Same thing with Aaron Judge. I think Aaron Judge is being drafted a little bit too high, and he's being overvalued just because of what he, what he did last year. He had a career season. He had a season for the ages. He's not gonna. It's it's hard to imagine a player doing that for two straight years. The la, I mean, he there are no, there's no such thing as a Barry Bonds anymore. I don't think. But I think he, Aaron, I'm not saying Aaron Judge is not a great player, but I don't think you're gonna get the value at him at the pit, pick number five. I think there's a bigger case for Julio Rodriguez to stay where he is because of the steals. And I think that if anything stays, it is the steals. And since it's still scarce, uh, and I think he has enough of everything else, I think there is a case. Uh, I'll give you three players, two pitchers and a hitter. Uh, Or actually, I should say two pitchers and then one person who's both. Well, that would be Shohei Otani. Uh, I, I think that Shohei Otani has more risk than most people think because he's doubly exposed. Whether you like it or not, people get injured in baseball and at a higher rate than normally. He is exposed both on the hitting side, albeit albeit on a DH, okay, but he's also exposed on the pitching side. If he's injured as a pitcher, that means he's also injured as the hitter, and they're not independent of each other. So I, I kind of think that there's a little bit of risk, plus – you know, you're going to be clogging up your utility spot if you draft him as well. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but it makes it a little bit less flexible for your roster, and you're not really getting a discount to roster him. So I don't like him in the first round. And the two pitchers, um, Jacob DeGrum, I cannot fathom why he is not being discounted more 
um, why he's being taken in the second round with that kind of risk. I just don't get it. Um, and Sandy Alcantara, I don't even have him in my top 10 of pitchers. I know he had a great year, but he doesn't strike out that great a rate. His value is in the volume. I mean, he's on the Marlins. I don't know how good a team will be. So are, wins? I mean, he does pitch late into games. That helps him, but... You know, he'd be even better on a better team. So I just don't think that he's properly valued. I'm I'm okay with waiting with, you know, Aaron Nola, even Brandon Woodruff, any one of those guys. Spent I'd even take a, a gamble on Spencer Strider over Alcantara this year. Anybody agree, disagree with any of our other picks? Um, I had a question about Otani. Um, yeah. How do you factor in? Um, and it, I mean, the, the Angels said that they will use a modified six-man rotation, so Otani is going to pitch um, every six days, which basically means. Um, last year, if they had a day off, they just keep going to six man rotation this year. And they actually did that in September last year. Uh, if they have a day off, Otani gets pushed up. Um, so per my math that, I mean, if, if all goes well, he could end up with about 30 games. Um, how do you factor? I mean, the way I, um, I've kind of put it quickly together, you could, you could start Otani. Um, he's probably gonna get. If, if, if all goes according to plan, you get two or three two-start weeks, you'll get the, I'm talking NFBC, uh, the short week to start the year and then short week at the all-star break. So you basically get eight starts from Otani and about 80% of his, hit, of, of his hitting stats. Um, do you factor that in? Does that push him up for you? I, I get what you're saying about the injury risk, um, but that part of it isn't factored, factored in, in the projections. Um, I was just curious what, what you thought of that. Yeah, I mean, up to now, and I haven't really thought about it too much. Um, I evaluate them right now separately as here's the full hitter player, here's the full pitcher player, and of course, you know, you need to come up with the percentage of time. Like if you're in a daily league, you know, you're getting uh, 100% of his pitching starts and you're getting, uh, you know, four-fifths or, or even more yeah, of his yeah. hitting starts, right? Like that's the math. I haven't really factored into it in, in a weekly league. I've just assumed that he's Otani the hitter. Because yeah, almost okay. always, other, right, up to now, other than, you know, the, the two, three weeks that I'm going to use him as a pitcher for the short week or whatever, he's a hitter. So I haven't really contemplated. Um, I'll believe it when I see it that he's going to be used that way. Um, I, I don't know that I actually want to press the button and say, okay, no, i got to factor in eight starts yet. Um, but, but in any case, he's... Yeah, I guess, I guess if he's pitching, you know, two start weeks, obviously he's the right play. I haven't really factored that in. But, yeah, you, you, you know, you would do the math in, in that kind of way exactly yeah. as you described it, yes. I, I was mostly off of him. I, I, I used to, at least last year, I kind of balanced out the UT only with the couple of pitching starts that you get. Uh, but last year in September, they did that a couple of times. Um, on, it, I think, start, when, when they had a new manager. Um, that's kind of when they started it. If they had an off day, Otani would get pushed up. So um, at that point, it becomes more interesting because he does get more more um, two-star weeks that way. So it, it's something to pay attention to. I don't know if I'll be in on him this year or not. Um, haven't fully decided because, like you said, it, it, it's hard to put it all together with the the higher injury risk, the, the pitching starts, all that stuff. Uh, but I do think he's more intriguing this year than he was last year because of that. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and I agree. Uh, let's end off with who is somebody drafted in the first two rounds that might even be undervalued for where they are. I'll start with Ruvain on this. Undervalued. Hmm. That's, that's, that's a little bit tougher because these are all top values to begin with. 
Um, undervalued, I, you know, I, I see right now the ADP, I, I, Garrett Cole's at 19. I mean, he was going in the first round last year. Um, people were concerned about him giving up a lot of home runs. He's, he, I mean, he did pitch with a 3-5 ERA, but he also had 257 strikeouts. That and, and he pitched 200 innings. That's that's hard to get. That's that's a workhorse. Now I, I think he's a little bit undervalued because I mean he's going first round. Is he a second round value? He could be a first round value. He could have that value. And as for a hitter, um, again we mentioned him before. I mean Freddie Freeman. I, I I don't know why he's not going in the middle of the first round. He's going. He always goes at the end of the first round. That whole that whole turn right there. If you look at the ADP according to NFBC right now, the turn is Freeman, Machado, Bichette. Those three guys have all at 13, 14, 15 right now. It's the ADP according to NFBC. Those three guys are three of the five guys who've returned first or second value the last five years. I'm mean, left the last two years. Why would you not want to pick them sooner? I mean, those are almost quote unquote as guarantees as you're going to get. They've all had, they've all been through some, you know, nicks and dings. And yes, you have to, you know, have to be concerned about injuries and stuff like that. But I mean, these guys, they're so consistent. Why would you not want to have them on your roster? Yeah, well, you know my feeling about Freeman. Uh, and Bichette is right there. I think that what Bichette showed at the end of the year last year is actually more indicative of what his value is. I'm looking at him all, all through the previous year, and like that guy should be hitting more homers. Uh, that guy has such a low slugging for, for what he should be able to do, and then boom, he did that at the end of the year. Uh, I kind of think Bichette is undervalued. If you remember, he was being drafted like top five last year, and now all of a sudden it's late first round. Not much has changed in his profile. In fact, the Blue Jays probably got better in terms of their offense even. Uh, so there's an argument for them there. And, you know, you mentioned Cole, but I think Corbin Burns deserves a first-round pick. Um, you know, he, he is just super solid. To me, there aren't that many uh, top ace aces that I'm like, okay, well, he's an obvious ace. Uh, I think the uniqueness of being that pitcher does make him worthy of being taken slightly earlier uh, than, than he is right now. I mean, if you didn't pick Machado, you can get Devers and be okay. If you didn't pick Freeman, I guess you can get Alonzo. Or instead of Vlad, you can get Alonzo, maybe a little bit more comparable in terms of makeup. But Burns, to me, is uh, uh, more of a rock than you think, uh, and I would say probably him. Anyone to add, Phil? Um, I, I mean, the, the guy I, I had my on was Cole. Um, I've always been interested in Garrett Cole. I've drafted him a lot. Um and where he's going right now in the earliest. I mean, that's going to change once we once we, we get into March in, in the main event season in the NFBC. Um, but for me, he stands out over Burns. Um, I had Burns on a team last year, and I don't know if everyone remembers that, but there was a point in late August, early September, where we'd consider benching Burns. He was struggling. Uh, I know he kind of got better at the end of the year, but... Um, I haven't really forgotten that, and I think Cole just stands out for me in terms of being safe, uh, being reliable, um, in terms of also that the, the schedule changing is going to make his life a little bit easier in the L East, uh, fewer in division games. So um, for me, he stands out over Burns uh, by quite a bit. So um, when, when you stand out, th despite all the pitchers being more, uh, being closer together and having a large group from rounds, I don't know, three to, to six or seven, um, when you stand out, at least for me, as the number one pitcher, um, you should be going in the first round. 
All right. Yeah. I, I have him a little bit closer. I think there's some flaws in Cole. But, yeah, he's also super reliable. The strikeouts are there. Uh, whether he gives up some home runs again, whether the uh, MLB tosses some balls to the Yankees that make Judge hit homers, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them, I'll tell you that. Uh, but, uh, you know, there you go. Um, you know, I, oh, I'll throw in a Tatis. I think Tatis also could be uh, overvalued. Not undervalued, overvalued. Um, <laughs> I just, I, that guy is so risky. Who knows? I mean, we've seen what happens when he plays, but will he play? Will he go on another motorcycle expedition? And, and will he go skydiving and end up in, a, in, a, in, a, in another cast? And is his wrist really healed? Is his shoulder really healed? I'm going to say no on both accounts. I mean, Ruven, you're the injury guy. Is Tatis, you agree that he's overvalued? He's got more health risks than you think? He does, but he's also had almost the this is a long time he's been out now. He hasn't he hasn't faced actual major league pitching in a very long time. The wrist has probably healed by now. Usually after surgery, after a couple months, he should be fine. Shoulder's a different issue because a shoulder subluxation like he had, that can pop out again at any time. There's what's holding it in right now, besides what's left of the tendons and ligaments in there, is a lot of scar tissue. If that scar tissue breaks, he can have another shoulder dislocation and have another issue, but he's not going to be playing shortstop. They're going to keep him in the outfield, so play some DH. So they're going to try to keep him as healthy as possible. So I don't think he's that big of an injury risk, but the way he plays puts him at an injury risk. Ruben, you have any injury news tonight? Actually, yes, I do. A couple of players. First of all, uh, we mentioned the first two rounds of players, so I'm going to talk about Ronald Acuna. He said, I'm feeling 100% and I'm ready to go back to normal. I definitely don't want to DH anymore. That being said, he's planning from, from this, this is from the most recent. He's planning on playing in the World Baseball Classic, but I think the Braves want him to DH only then just because it's the beginning of spring training, and they wanted to make sure that he's okay with that. Former second or first round player Trevor Story had internal bracing procedure on his UCL in the right elbow. Um, he's going to open the season obviously on the IL. He, the, the, the Red Sox had their uh, had their conference with, for all the season ticket holders. He was there wearing his brace. Um, July or August is probably when he's going to come back. That's what the Red Sox say. The Red Sox also said don't expect to get much out of him. But then Trevor Story said that he expects to play this year and he expects to get you know, supposed to get some some out of him. And one more player that may be off of people's radar just a little bit, and that's Max Mayer. Max Mayer will start getting ready to throw in a couple of weeks. He had Tommy John surgery in August. If you're in a keeper league and people dropped him because they're nervous about him or or you want to have a large bench or you have IL spots, he's a guy you may want to pick up. You may be able to get him, and he may have some value toward the end of the season. Well, Phil, this has been a really large episode with so many great topics that we've really talked about from, you know, the drafting into the waiver wire to risk. So uh, a lot, a lot of great stuff. Thank you so much for joining the program. And uh, before we let you go, you know, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, where we can see some of the stuff that you've done and uh, what's in store for you uh, in the next little while. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, PhilDuso27. Um, I wrote an article for the FTN draft guide that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's a paid, uh, it's part, of, it's a paid um, subscription, but it's well worth it. You'll get um, Vlad's uh, Fab Whisper um, article all season long. Um, so a lot of people that play, pretty much everyone who plays NFPC, pays for that. It's well worth it uh, just to get a gauge on the market and uh 90 of, of lads recommendations every week so if you're going to pay for that in season might as well pay early and get, and get the draft guy and look at all the all the articles in there uh, and other than that um i'll be uh drafting uh 
from now until March, and I'll be in, in Vegas with the NFBC. So if anyone's listening who's going to be there, uh, come say hi. Phil, did we ever draft in a league together? I felt like we did in New York once. I don't believe we did. Uh, I went to New York one year in 2019. Um, did, I, did I help out Jeff Zimmerman in, in one draft and you were there? You, you might have. Am I, making I, this I, up? I did have a I, – <laughs> I was in, in, Jeff's, uh, in Jeff's main event in 2019. You were? Yeah, yeah, I was. All right, so, so that, then that could have uh, been it, yeah. So then I was, uh, I was there. So uh, there you but go. But I, I, I was quiet at that time. I don't, I don't. I think I just signed up for Twitter. I wasn't doing any podcasts. No one knew who I was, and I wasn't really involved in in the community. So I probably didn't even know who you were at that time either. I didn't know anyone. So. Uh. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, if you're in the draft room, you can't miss him. So yeah. Yeah. Can't, can't miss who? <laughs> you. Oh. <laughs> <Ariel>. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? If 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 anyone wants to see it, they should come in on in New York on that Friday when we're drafting. You'll see how Ariel takes over a room when he drafts. Oh, auction, yeah. Well, there I was helping out Jeff in a snake draft, yeah. so I, I was pretty quiet. But yeah, in an auction, oh, I'm I'm pretty loud. <laughs> not not in a nasty way. I just uh, you'll you'll notice my presence there in a in a very uh, soothing hypnotic way. Let's put it that. Way. <laughs> uh, Ruben, how about you? What about your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come during season, off season, all season. Um, you can also catch my weekly article on Rotoballer that comes out on Saturday or Sunday, depending, and that will help you with your fab for the following week. All right, I'm Ariel Cohen, and you can find me on Twitter at ATCNY. Hey, you can also follow the ATC Projections at ATC Projections. That's easy to remember, and of course, you can. Follow the Beat the Shift podcast at beat underscore shift underscore pod. Um, my work over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer, and the ATC projections are on those sites, plus at Sportsline in a nice uh, Google uh, Sheets. So uh, go check that out. And, uh, of course, you can listen to us each week on the Beat the Shift podcast right here. Uh, and you'll notice this week we'll be doubling up episodes. We'll have a bunch of weeks doubled up to get you ready for draft season 2023. All right, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Phil Dussault for coming on the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.